that's not my goal. Like my goal isn't to garner more media attention or to shock the world or to, or to even top Boston. Like my goal is to keep the love of the sport, to stay healthy and to continue chipping away at times. Cause, um, ultimately I think kind of like, um, does Lyndon has really shown the world like, if you are able to stay healthy and train consistently for a long period of time, that's where you get really good. That's Sarah Sellers, and this is episode 28 of the Morning Shakeout Podcast. I'm your host, Mario Fraioli, and this week we've got the surprise second place finisher from the Boston Marathon in April, where a lot of people, myself included, were asking, who is Sarah Sellers after she crossed the finish line on Boylston Street? And we're not going to try to answer that question here today. It's already been done ad nauseum. Instead, we're going to dig into what she's been up to since then, how her life has changed, what she's got coming up this fall, talked about training, injuries, nutrition, all kinds of good stuff that I think you'll take a lot away from. So without further ado, please enjoy my conversation with Sarah Sellers. Sarah Sellers, welcome to the Morning Shakeout Podcast. Thank you so much for having me on. Are you tired of talking about Boston yet? Uh, no, but I am excited to be like training for New York now and be able to talk about that openly. So I kind of like looking forward more than looking back, but I think Boston's still exciting. Yeah, we'll look back in a little bit here, but let's look forward to New York. You recently just, well... I shouldn't say just committed, but it was just announced that you committed to the race. When did you decide that you wanted to run New York and what was the impetus behind that decision? Yeah, um, I think it was about a month and a half ago, um, actually maybe two months ago that um, I decided on New York and um, kind of knew that I wanted to do a big marathon in the fall. And I think the course in New York plays to my strengths. I mean, we'll see. I don't really know yet, but I think just feeling kind of a tougher course, um, I think that'll be good for um, the way I run marathons. Yeah, and New York will be your third marathon, if I'm not mistaken, correct? Yeah, exactly. And did the fact that New York, or the fact that it doesn't have pacers and that it is hillier and kind of more of a let's say like competitive cross country style race versus a, you know, pace time trial like Chicago or Berlin or something like that. Was that more appealing to you for those reasons? Yeah, no, those are exactly the reasons. Um, and I think that I'm, I'm more of a strength runner. I think, um, speed wise, hopefully that'll come along, but I think, um, yeah, Hills and, uh, just that kind of course placed my strengths. Yeah. And Boston, obviously is a big stage for marathoning here in the U.S., if not the biggest. It could rival New York, one could say. Um, heading into New York this fall, coming off of your second-place performance at Boston this spring, do you feel any additional pressure based on, on what you did at Boston, external or otherwise? Yeah, I mean, it's been really interesting. Uh, I think I've tried to compartmentalize things and... Um, really just focus on training and focus on the process. Um, I think inevitably external pressure is another factor that I'm trying to learn to handle. Um, I'd like to pretend that it doesn't affect me, um, but 
I think, you know, I've raced uh, just twice since Boston and um, both those races were pretty disappointing. I think um, my iron was actually pretty low for both of those races. So I think that was a big factor. Um, but I think it was probably the biggest factor was just learning to um, balance my expectations for myself. And I think really the only pressure that matters is the pressure that I put on myself. And if I let other people's expectations um, add to the pressure that I put on myself, like that's, that's a negative thing. So I think going into New York, um, I'm glad that I've had a few kind of rust buster races to um, realize that uh, even though, you know, there might be a whole nother world of external pressure, like ultimately um, that doesn't have to play a factor in, my training or in my racing. Yeah. And Boston for you, it was your second marathon, obviously a huge breakthrough on a number of levels to finish second in your first marathon major and come out of nowhere to do that. You also set, you know, a slight personal best. It was less than a minute on an, on an un, unideal day, you know, for, for running fast. So you made, certainly made like a big jump between your first marathon, and your second marathon coming off of Boston and heading into New York. Like, what are your expectations at this point? Yeah, I think um, I'm still honestly trying to determine exactly what those are. I think uh, my biggest goal going into New York is to stay healthy um, because I think if I can get to the start line in New York um, healthy and with a solid training block, um, I think things are going to go well. Uh, I think the women's field that was just announced is uh, pretty insane <laughs> and it's insane in a very good way. Like I think it's, it gets me really excited that there's so many, I mean, I can't even obviously begin to list the number of women who are in the field that have run just insane races and have had incredible careers. So really for me, my perspective is right now to focus, um, focus on training and recovery and focus on the process and kind of as it gets closer to the race, I think I'll be able to set some um, high but realistic goals and just um, based on, you know, how my training is going. Um, I would love to, I, you know, set like a, a time goal. I think, you know, being conservative, I, I don't even have the Olympic A standards. So I think, um, that's something I think is very achievable is at least getting that standard. Um, and ideally if my training goes well, I would love to run a lot faster than that. Mm -hmm. Does the strength of the field at New York intimidate you at all? Honestly, it's strange, but I think it's taken some of the pressure off because really I, I think, and I need to double check the list, but on the list of the, pro women's field, I think I have the third slowest, fastest time, sorry, third slowest PR. Mm -hmm. So honestly, like Boston, I feel like I've finally had time to process the, the whole experience and kind of process the aftermath and going into New York. Um, I just feel incredibly blessed to be on that start line. And I, as much as like, there might be some, uh, like I said, some external pressure and stuff. Um, I'm still an underdog. Like I got second at Boston, but I have the third slowest time, I think somewhere around there going into New York. So really, um, 
I've set some huge goals for myself, um, but I'm trying not to be distracted by, um, by the media and by, you know, some of the craziness after Boston and just focus again on um, controlling what I can control and putting the best performance on. You mentioned the aftermath of Boston. What has that been like for you in the last few months? Uh, it's, I think, a whirlwind. It's been um, super exciting in a lot of ways because I've kind of gotten to connect with a lot of um, other professional runners and um, media sources that, you know, if you told me like the day before Boston, um, a, that I would finish second and B that I would like be interviewed with BBC and NBC and like ESPN and all these different news outlets. Like, I don't know what I, <laughs> I don't, I mean, first of all, I wouldn't have believed it. But I also like, I would have thought I couldn't handle that. Um, but because I've typically been a very, um, reserved and somewhat private person. I never post on social media in the past and, um, really like that intimidated me um, hugely because I think um, I'm kind of a people pleaser and I like to, uh, I like to make my family happy. I like to, when I do something, I like to be able to see people's reactions. So kind of the scary thing to me about um, if you told me all this was going to happen is it's like all these people are going to suddenly like see me for who I am and, um, you know, judge me for the decisions that I make. And I would have honestly thought I couldn't handle that. Um, but now that it's all happened, I feel like, um, it's been, uh, it's really built my confidence because, um, I kind of realized like I'm making decisions based on true principles, I think, and based on trying to be true to myself and less based on trying to please people, especially now that it's like, I can't control, um, who even knows about me and knows about things that I'm doing. So it's more, it's, it's been really cool. Cause I, like I said, I think before I would have thought I could never handle that kind of attention and, and that kind of pressure. But um, now that it's kind of come and happened, um, it's just cool that I feel kind of more confident in just being who I am. Yeah. You went from basically being a backstage actor before Boston that no one ever saw to being thrown right into the spotlight at a moment's notice. And you're going to stay in that spotlight through New York. Um, what's interesting to me is like before Boston, no one knew who you were. So there was zero media attention leading into the race. And you could just kind of do your thing when there was all this yeah. hype around the strength of the women's field and how bad the weather was going to be. And you could just focus on yourself. Do you anticipate uh, going into New York, especially since you know you will get a lot of media interest because of what you did at Boston. Like, what will you do to, I guess, guard yourself so that you can set yourself up for the best race possible? Um, I think there's a few things. So, actually, on my morning run today, I was thinking about exactly that, and an analogy came to mind where I thought about like in elementary school when you start learning to do story problems. Um, like the main difference in story problems is they throw in all this, um, extra information that doesn't really, um, affect the simple arithmetic that you're supposed to do. And I feel like I, my running has been thrown into like a story problem <laughs> where it's like, there's now all this extra information, extra pressure, 
And honestly, none of that changes the process itself. None of it changes the training or the recovery. And it's easy to become distracted and kind of overwhelmed by all this extra stuff. Um, but I'm trying to remember, like, it's still basic arithmetic. Like, it still comes back to the basics of why I love the sport. Um, good races happen. Bad races happen. I've had my share of bad races in my career. And I'm sure, like, I'm going to have more bad races. And I will still plan and prepare for every single race to try to have every single race be a good one. Um, but also realizing, like, um, I think in college, bad races affected me to like a pathological point mm -hmm. where it was like if I had a bad race I mean it was kind of the end of the world <laughs> for a little while and now it's um, I think I have a better perspective in realizing like I'm gonna control everything that I can I'm gonna um, put myself in the best position to have a good performance and to put up some good times um, but really distance running is a long-term sport and um, I think New York is just a incredible opportunity to be on that start line and to hopefully put, put on a great performance and put on a great race. Um, but no matter what happens, like I'm in this sport for the long haul and, you know, right after Boston, it was, it was really scary in some ways because I suddenly realized like, I can't have bad races anymore. Like I'm going to let all sorts of people down. Um, but really it, it again just comes back down to the basics and that's all extra information that doesn't actually matter. And I'm, I'm in this for the long haul. Yeah. Building off of that, do you ever worry, maybe even in the back of your mind of not being able to top what you did at Boston or if you didn't, would that even bother you? Um, I think right after Boston. Yeah. I had that. I mean, I had probably the three months after Boston, that was a huge worry. Um, I did one interview where the interviewer said uh, something and he didn't mean it rudely, but he said something like, you know, usually when I interview people, um, I don't have um, the perspective to say like, oh, that's the best performance you'll ever have. But he said, with you, that's the case. That's the best performance you'll ever have. And it kind of took me aback because I'm like, maybe, but you don't know that. I don't know that. Um, in some ways, like the shock factor, no, I guarantee I'll never be able to top that. Like that's never going to happen. <laughs> I'm never going to go from like a complete unknown to second at Boston again, like that, um, gradient is never going to be there again. Um, but I think that's not my goal. Like my goal isn't to garner more media attention or to shock the world or to, or to even top Boston. Like my goal is to um, keep the love of the sport to stay healthy and to continue chipping away at times. Cause, um, ultimately I think kind of like, um, does Lyndon has really shown the world. Like if you are able to stay healthy and train consistently for a long period of time, that's where you get really good. And I can't expect to suddenly be at this insane level. Cause really I've been back in competitive running for, like a year or less than a year um, since all my injuries and everything. So I think, um, sorry, it's getting a little rambly, but I think no worries. just realizing that, that it's a long process and I can't expect to take shortcuts. 
um, I'm ready to put in the work and hopefully stay healthy so I can be in the sport for a long time. Yeah. And if nothing else, it just serves as maybe not necessarily a, a reminder, but as evidence that anything is possible, right? As long as you continue to do all the things that you just said, put in the work, stay consistent, keep showing up, as Des would say. Um, and you just never know on, on race day, because as you said, like the shock factor may never be there. Who could have ever predicted that? But it just goes to show like, you know, race day, it's nothing's guaranteed. Anything can happen, right? Right, exactly. Um one thing you just mentioned that I'd like to dig into a little bit is that back in college, if you had a bad race, you said it would have just devastated you, kind of like consumed your thoughts and, and really hard to get over. Whereas now you can move on a bit quicker. How are you able to just sort of mature in that way? Um, I think part of it has come from this life perspective and especially like working in healthcare and, um, you know, seeing what people go through on just like a day-to-day basis, like people with terminal illness and cancer and um, kind of just the perspective to realize that I think in some ways I was um, a little bit selfish in college, like just realizing that um, me being in a grumpy mood for a month after, not really, but like kind of just having this black cloud hanging over me, um, you know, when I got uh, my junior year at Weber State, I was 13th in the 10K at regionals. So I was the first person to not go to nationals um, at NCAA Division One nationals. And I actually, that was the second year um, that that had happened. And I don't think I slept normal for like two months after that race. And um, I think now I realize like, me like carrying this black cloud around, like not only affects the decisions I make and what I'm able to accomplish, but affects my family. Like they don't deserve to have me, you know, act like the world was falling apart because I had a bad race. And, um, I guess just realizing like, for all I know, I could be diagnosed with a terminal illness tomorrow. And I think it's an incredible blessing to be running and competing. And, um, as much as like on that day, you never want it to be a bad race on that day. Like it'll happen. And when it happens, like being able to turn around and immediately like try to take something positive away from that. Um, that's really, um, I think key to success. And, uh, quickly, there's a quote that, um, from Winston Churchill, that's success is the ability to go from failure to failure with no loss of enthusiasm. And I've tried to take that to heart and just realize like um, being able to keep your positivity and keep your enthusiasm despite um, day-to-day failures is really what leads to success. I love that. Building off of that, I read a quote in an article about you from your coach, Paul Pilkington, and he said, I think the biggest thing is her mental toughness. He said that right after Boston. Where does that mental toughness come from? Um, I I think that was very kind of him. (laughs) I I think sometimes I think we're our own worst critics and I tend to doubt my mental toughness. Um, but if that is to some degree a strength, I think, um, it just comes from consistently trying to, um, give yourself expectations and then follow through on those expectations. And, um, it's a pattern of 
trying to hold yourself accountable. So whether it's like fitting in hard workouts before work or, um, whatever it is that, uh, your day-to-day actions leading towards a goal. I think when you consistently, um, hold yourself to these high expectations, then when it comes to race day, like you've had that pattern in place of, um, not giving up when times are hard. And I think there's, there's not really any replacement. There's, there's no shortcut to getting there. It's just, um, yeah, kind of being able to hold yourself to those expectations. And, and even when you feel like it might be a bad day, um, I like to tell myself, like, I'm going to have, <laughs> like my last race was a 10 K and it was a pretty rough race, but I try to tell myself I'm going to have the best bad race that I can because I want even my bad races to be good, bad races. Hey, we're going to take a quick break so I can thank our sponsor for this episode. It is You Can. You Can powders and bars with super starch give you slow release carbs without the big crash. That's long lasting energy without the sugar spikes and it's easy on the stomach before you head out and run. I can personally vouch for UCAN as I've used the drink powder to fuel my last few marathons, including Boston just a couple months ago, and it has been an integral part of my pre-race nutrition plan. But don't just take my word for it. Top athletes like Meb, Dathan Ritzenhain, and members of the Zap Fitness Racing Team use it to fuel their training and racing as well. UCAN is ideal for any runner looking to fuel workouts and races without all the sugar of many other sports drinks. There's nothing out there quite like it. So... I'd recommend trying a UCAN sample pack for yourself. You'll get one packet of UCAN Super Starch drink mix, one packet of UCAN Protein drink mix, and one UCAN snack bar, all for under five bucks. And that includes free shipping. Check it out today at generationucan.com slash morning shakeout. There is no the, just slash morning shakeout and see what you think. My thanks to UCAN for their support of the Morning Shakeout podcast. Let's get back to the show. That whole discussion on mental toughness, I think it ties in very closely with injury, which is something that you had mentioned a little while ago. You said prior to Boston, you'd only been running for a year at that point. I know at Weber State, I believe it was your senior year, you had a navicular stress fracture, which kept you out for a while. What were some of the other injuries that you've dealt with in recent years that have kept you on the sidelines? Yeah, so really that was um, the navicular stress fracture was... uh, it kind of progressed to chronic non-union for quite some time. I'm still not sure if it's fully healed. So that was the one that uh, kind of kept me out of competing for several years. Um, I've had three stress fractures and then just one pretty simple knee surgery. So um, definitely pales in comparison to what a lot of runners have gone through. But I think just the um, difficulty that I had healing the navicular stress fractures. And then also just um, some of it was a voluntary thing um, where once, um, you know, I was faced with a choice when I got the navicular stress fracture that um, some of the doctors that I met with kind of said, you know, there's, this shouldn't happen when you're, I don't remember how old I was, like 20 years old. Like you, you shouldn't, this, this is kind of a, and, and also I had a DEXA scan that my bone density um, was close to clinical osteoporosis and really I should be close to my peak bone density at that time. So it was kind of a wake up call when I get that stress fracture to realize like I'm, I'm not taking care of my body and I don't want to be getting a hip fracture at 
45 years old rolling over in bed and so kind of just had to step away from the sport and regain some health before I could come back to competing. Yeah, I can absolutely relate to that because I've suffered two sacral stress fractures and one in my pubic symphysis. Mm -hmm. And I remember with the last one, the orthopedist told me, and I was 25 years old at the time, he's like, Wow. Dude, this is an injury that we see in elderly women and birthing mothers. You need to take better care of yourself. And that was a wake-up call for me. And exactly. I ended up doing the same thing, taking a long time off of, of running to, you know, just sort of regain perspective. And I guess in your case, like what did dealing with those injuries and taking some time off do for your overall perspective on sport? And then you just got into this a little bit, but just overall health. Yeah, I think it's uh you know, initially I was pretty bitter. <laughs> um, can't say that I took it well initially because uh, one of the doctors that I met with said, you know, maybe you should take up art or like something just totally non-competitive and like uh, not athletic even. <laughs> and I was kind of not offended by that, but it was like he's trying to redefine who I am as a person. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think taking the amount of time away from the sport, um, kind of going back to one of your earlier questions of um, the perspective of handling bad races now, um, I think just being forced to take away, take time for several years away from the sport. Um, now, when I have a bad race, I realize like at least I am out here competing and I'm healthy enough to be running. Um, so I think, yeah, it kind of, it gave me a better perspective for now when I'm in the sport. And then I think it was just, I never would have chosen to take that break from the sport. But I also think um, in some ways it was really necessary because uh, right before that navicular stress fracture happened, uh, I think I pretty much defined myself as a runner and not much else. Mm -hmm. Like, I mean, I was still, I was in nursing school and, but honestly, like if you asked me to define myself, like that is how I defined myself. And, um, kind of now with that long break away from the sport and coming back, if you asked me how I define myself, like it's not necessarily as just a runner anymore, even though I'm running more miles than I ever have at this point. Like, um, I think just realizing like a, I'm, I'm a whole person. And, um, and I think that probably factored in also to bad races when, when you define yourself as like, I'm a runner, then when you have a bad race, it's like, well, I'm a bad person. Cause I'm only a runner. That was a bad race. <laughs> so kind of having better perspective was the whole process. How would you extend that definition of yourself now? Um, I mean, I think family's a huge part of it. I'm, um, my husband's, a actually, he's an orthopedic surgery resident, so he keeps me on top of trying to stay healthy. So I think trying to support him and as he's putting in hundred hour weeks, um, and sometimes that means I feel like I'm making a few sacrifices myself, like, um, trying to, and, and he sacrifices for me for sure, um, to degrees that I can't even, um, imagine, but I think, um, trying to be just a more conscientious, um, wife and sister. And, um, my religion plays a huge role in who I am. Um, I'm LDS. Um, and then I'm my profession. I'm a nurse anesthetist. Um, so like I said, just being able to 
um, deal with patients as they're like going through some of the hardest times in their lives. Um, I feel like all that kind of defines me as a person and running is one component of that. Um, but it's no longer like the, even the primary component, I think. Sure. You just mentioned your profession as a nurse and that's, I can't even say it. Nurse anesthetist. It's okay. It's fine. <laughs> I, I don't have that. I don't have that. Uh, that trick of the tongue there. But I mean, okay. needless to say, it's a demanding job. Um, you put in long shifts. I believe they're you know twelve hours, if not more. You're on your feet the entire time. You're dealing with some pretty intense stuff in a hospital setting. You're also training and racing at a pretty high level. How do you balance those two things? Yeah. So I think uh, since Boston. I've tried to strike a better balance. So I've actually decreased uh, my hours at work. Um, so I can try to focus a little bit more on training and recovery right now. Um, and just so leading up to Boston, I was doing a lot of my hard workouts after work. Um, and I think in some ways that really prepared me for the conditions of Boston um, because I think my training conditions were always like being a little bit dehydrated and like tired after work. So I think that was in some ways it was a benefit training for Boston, but moving forward, I think that's not really the best setup to um, put in the kind of workouts that it will take to take it to the next level. Um, so I've tried to structure and my um, hospital has actually been, super supportive and they've let me restructure my schedule. So now like on Tuesdays, um, I go into work and I, from 11 to seven. Um, and that means I can like put in a hard workout and lift before I go to work. Um, and I think that that's made a huge difference. And since Boston, you've also signed on with a couple sponsors, ultra about a month after the race and more recently generation. You can, how is that additional support in addition to scaling back your work hours just help you to take these next steps that you've talked about to becoming more competitive in the marathon? Yeah, I think uh, one component um, besides just, you know, the um, support of being able to have like consistent sports nutrition products that work well with me and having like um, shoes that I love, like uh, those are huge factors in themselves. But, um, I think another factor is being held accountable because, um, before it was like, you know, I'm training for myself. And, um, if I, um, kind of sabotage myself, like that sucks, but it's not like anyone else is counting on me. Um, and now I kind of feel like I need to take all the little things a lot more serious because, um, I don't want to let those people down and I don't want to let my sponsors down. And, um, so it, when it comes down to trying to get in the right sleep and recovery and that kind of thing, um, I really feel like it's about more than me and I have a responsibility to, um, perform well for, um, you know, Alter and UCAN that are, um, that are sponsoring me. How important is that support system, not just the sponsors who are providing you with product and reimbursing you in other ways, but you mentioned your husband and just 
the hospital that you work at being so supportive. Like, how important is that? And what advice would you give to other runners who maybe aren't even running at your level, but, you know, are just are trying to to improve and, you know, may or may not have some of those systems in place? Yeah, I think it's been huge. Um, my husband, Blake, is actually kind of the one who um, got the fire going for me to get competing again because, um, you know, I ended my collegiate career um, thinking that there was a good chance that I would never get back to competing um, because even if my navicular healed correctly, um, you know, my bone density was to the point where it's like, is this even smart to even consider competing again? Or am I just going to set myself up for, you know, osteoporosis at 30 and all those same kind of questions. Um, but we actually, I met my husband, um, a few months before the navicular stress fracture. And so he honestly had never, uh, he's never before Boston, he had never seen me compete healthy. Like I was always like, <laughs> kind of this has been former runner and um, he knew that I'd run some good races in college. And um, he kind of would always tell me that if I could get healthy, like it'd be really cool um, because he knew I loved the sport and it was really hard for me to give it up. So he really encouraged me to um, do the little things to let my body heal and to get healthy. Um, And then when I finally, when I finished school and I felt like I was healthy and at a point where I could compete again, um, he, he made big time sacrifices, uh, to give me the support so I could start putting in marathon miles and could start training for Boston. Cause, um, I think he's always had a lot more faith in me than I have in myself and kind of wanting to let him see me compete healthy when he's, he's known me for five years and he's never before seen me compete healthy. Um, so I guess as far as advice to other people in in the situation that, um, I think having, um, people who want you to be the best version of yourself is really key. Um, my grandpa has a saying that people live up or down to our expectations So when you're surrounded by people who have high expectations of you, um, you make decisions that um, you want to make those people happy and to, um, you know, kind of, uh, I guess, thank them for their support. And I think have people in your life who, who want you to be the best that you can be and who give you the support that, um, you can kind of chase your goals. Yeah, I love that. I think it's so important. Building off that, you mentioned your husband's support when you had met him. You know, he'd never seen you compete healthy before, and he helped you to do the little things that you needed to do to to get back to that. What other changes um, did you make after coming to understand that you had chronically low bone density that could be really problematic down the road that you had this propensity for injury. And once you decided you were going to continue with running and you were going to try to train hard and, and compete again, what other changes did you make to your lifestyle, your diet, um, 
any and all of that stuff to ensure that you can stay healthy for as long as possible. Yeah, I think um, I've always um, been consistent about putting in the miles, um, probably to a pathologic extent sometimes, um, where it's like if I'm, you know, going to be getting four hours sleep, like I'm still going to make sure I get my double in. Um, but I think I've tried to change that perspective. And, um, I try to tell myself like, you don't get faster when you're running, right. You get faster when you're recovering from your run. So if you're keeps you shortchanging yourself during your recovery, like over time, that's what leads to stress fractures and all the chronic injuries. Um, so I think, um, one key has just been trying to focus on recovery and prioritize that to the same extent that I prioritize getting miles in. Um, and I think nutrition wise, um, I've always tried to eat healthy, but I tend to be kind of a cheapskate and like sometimes healthy foods expensive. And I'm like, well, I'm just going like at the hospital, for example, like, if I didn't have time to pack my lunch, um, there's usually free food in the doctor's lounge. It's usually not super healthy. And some days, like, I would just go eat the free food because I didn't want to spend $6 on, like, a wrap that was going to be <laughs> healthy. So um, now I've tried to turn that mindset around and um, just really invest in keeping myself healthy and just making the the day-to-day decisions like nutrition and strength training and sleep are kind of the areas that I'm focusing on to hopefully prevent long-term injuries. Yeah, I think all of that is huge. And I like that word that you used, investment. And I think in terms of food, it, it is an actual monetary investment. You're buying good gas to fill your tank with, but also that investment of time yeah. in terms of prehab and rehab and sleep, um, especially sleep. And uh, I think a lot of runners uh, elite and aspiring elite and just competitive runners in, in general, it's like the first thing to go is sleep because our lives are, are so busy. But I love that idea of just investing that time into your, into yourself and reframing it into that perspective, I think gives it a lot more meaning and importance, which is great. Um, I'd like to talk a bit about your relationship with your coach, Paul Pilkington. He coached you at Weber state. Um, you graduated 2012, so you would have started 2009. So that relationship minus the time that you took away from running has been about nine-ish years now. I'm interested in how important that relationship has been for your overall development as an athlete. Um, I think Paul Bluggins been a huge component of my running actually since high school. Um, so I grew up in Ogden, Utah, which is where Weber State is. Um, and my house is like two miles away from Weber State. Um, so I've honestly, I've known Paul since um, probably, uh, I think I met him when I was a sophomore or junior in high school. And um, I basically decided to go to Weber State because of him and because um, Lindsey Anderson, um, who went to the Olympics in the steeplechase in 2008, um, she had, he was coaching her and she, she went to the Olympics right before I graduated high school. So kind of seeing the success that he had with Lindsay and then with some of the friends that I had who, um, ran for him, um, gave me confidence in him early on and then running for him at Weber state. Um, I think just 
continue to build my um, trust in him as a coach. Um, I think especially, and again, there's, there's a lot of great coaches around the country, but um, I think something that has been really key for my trust in him and his coaching is um, he really doesn't believe in taking shortcuts. He knows that it's a long-term process. Um, there will, you know, I've never been the smallest runner. Like I'm, I don't know where, how to assess myself, but I'm definitely um, not the leanest runner out there. And there were several times in college where I came to Pilkington and I, um, and I asked him like, cause I, I'm actually surprised that I asked this question, but I asked him if, um, if he thought it would be a good idea if I lost five pounds or 10 pounds. And he, he told me no, like, and I'm sure he knows maybe I would have run faster at the time. Um, but I trusted his advice and, um, I think he saw it as like, this is, um, this is where my body like is at a healthy point. And, you know, the, those five or 10 pounds might make me faster for a season, but, um, put me in that hole of, you know, progressing down lower bone density, even quicker. So I think, um, just seeing his long-term approach to coaching and to training. Um, and I just always, I feel like whenever I've had a bad race, um, or had a, an, a bad end to the season, it was never his fault. <laughs> it was always things that I did. Like I sabotaged myself by not sleeping or not recovering. Um, it was never that he was like, pushing me in a negative way or, um, so I think those, those components of just him always, um, having a long-term perspective was, was key to during college and then also, um, contacting him to train me for Boston. And then afterwards. Now you are living in Arizona, nowhere near Ogden, Utah, where, yeah. um, Paul Pilkington still is so you're not seeing him on a regular basis like you were when you were in college and being able to check in quite to that degree. How has the relationship evolved in that respect now that you are living further apart? He's not there to watch your workouts. If you had to take on more of a sense of autonomy, um, more ownership of your training, if you learned to trust yourself more, like just how has all that evolved since you've moved away? Yeah, I think it's been interesting. Um, it's, he definitely is always, um, concerned about how I'm responding to training, obviously, and how I'm feeling. And if, um, there are any injuries or things I need to take care of. Um, he really is, um, concerned with making sure that, <laughs> that I'm not like, again, sabotaging myself. And I keep using that word because I think in the past, like that's exactly what I did. I would put in all the hard, hard miles and put in all the hard work and then, um, totally sabotage my efforts by not recovering. Um, so when I tell him that I'm not getting good sleep, like he'll immediately cut me back. And, um, in some ways I, one of the, one of the big disadvantages to, um, it being a long distance thing is, um, sometimes I try to make things sound better than they are. Like, I mean, I never like lie about my times or anything like that, but sometimes like if I have a workout that I had to like kill myself to hit the times, then when I tell them about the workout, I'll usually like 
the tendency is for me to be like, Oh, the workout was fine. Like it was not really a big deal, but I've <laughs> kind of tried to, um, be honest with myself and honest with him and, um, like realize that that's, um, if, if I'm pretending that the workout was easier than it was, um, like he can't properly coach me if I'm not giving him accurate feedback. Yeah. It's the challenges of a remote coaching relationship, which is something I can certainly relate to. You've mentioned yeah. a couple times how you've like sabotaged yourself for lack of a better term. Uh, those are your words in my research for the interview. I noticed that you were a 4.0 student and it seems to me that you try to do everything right, or at least to the best of your ability. Would you say you have like a perfectionist type a type of mentality when it comes to your training and just how you approach your, your life in general? Yeah, for sure. If I'm going to do something, I'm going to try to do it right. (laughs) Sometimes that means that I'm also a procrastinator because if I don't have time to do it right, then I'm probably not going to do it at all. Um, or I'm going to, I'm going to put it off until I have time to do it right. And has that been a hard thing to strike a balance with backing off when you need to, so that you can kind of keep things in homeostasis? Yeah, I know for sure. And kind of going back to the whole recovery thing, um, there's definitely times where, uh, you know, my morning run with like the day after a hard workout, my morning run the next day, sometimes when I feel like complete garbage, like, and then I'll go to work all day, get off work late. And then it's 9 PM and like, I'll go for my second run. Like that second run in some instances is probably causing more harm than good. If, if the goal of that day is recovering from the previous day's workout. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I think, having some common sense to temper the perfectionism is key. <laughs> I don't always do that, but I think that's where my coach and my husband can both um, give that outside perspective to tell me like you're being an idiot. Like that's, that's defeating the whole purpose. Like today you're supposed to recover whatever it took to recover. That's the goal of today. Yeah. It's important that we have those people in our lives from help preventing us from self-sabotaging ourselves in those in those instances. I have a couple more questions before we wrap up. From a training perspective, since you've worked with Coach Pilkington for so long, how has that evolved since you graduated college and moved onto the marathon? Is the training itself pretty similar to what you remember from college, or has it um, changed in some ways since you've moved up in distance? Yeah, I think it's still um, structured fairly similar to some of what I was doing for um, mostly the 10K in college. Um, obviously higher miles, um, and kind of some key hard long runs. Um, so I'd say it's pretty similar to some of the, yeah, some of the structure in college, um, but probably trading, uh, some of the higher intensity workouts for some harder long runs. Last question. What inspires or excites you moving forward, both in the near term leading up to New York and then even beyond that as it relates to your running career? Um, I think I'm just super excited to be in a, um, to have some doors opened that, um, I never thought would be possible. Um, like even being in the elite field at New York, um, it's just, a, a really amazing opportunity and I'm, uh, just super excited to, um, be interacting with some of the heroes 
in the sport that, um, like Kara Goucher, who's, um, just done some really incredible things. And I just listened actually yesterday, I listened to your podcast with her, which was really great. Um, and so I think just being able to interact with some of those like heroes of mine where I never thought that I'd have the opportunity. And then also, um, I'm just excited that I feel like, um, I finally have the faith in myself to, um, invest in those little things that, um, hopefully will lead to long-term success. Um, I feel like in the past, sometimes I thought, like, you know, I didn't have enough talent or didn't have enough of like, whatever it took. So, um, I wouldn't, I wouldn't do those little things to stay healthy. And now it's like, I feel like Boston gave me a glimpse into hopefully what's possible. And, um, now I feel like I, I owe it to myself and I owe it to other people to, um, put in all the little things that are going to, um, hopefully keep me healthy and, um, lead to like long-term success. I think that's a good place to wrap things up. Sarah, this was a ton of fun. Thank you so much for coming on the show. All right. Thanks so much. And that's a wrap on this week's show, which was brought to you by UCAN. If you want long-lasting energy without the big crash, give UCAN products a try before your next long run. UCAN is offering Morning Shakeout listeners a super cool sample pack. It includes one packet of UCAN Superstar Drink Mix, one packet of UCAN Protein Drink Mix, and one UCAN Snack Bar, all for under five bucks. Best part, it includes free shipping. Get it for yourself at generationucan.com slash morning shakeout and see what you think. My thanks to all of you for listening into this episode. If you want to support the podcast, the easiest way is by subscribing on Apple Podcasts or wherever you consume your audio content and leaving a rating and a review. It will only take a minute, but it helps other listeners discover the show. Not to mention, it means a lot to me. I'm super appreciative for all the love and support you've thrown my way so far. Really, I'm just blown away by it all. So thank you so, so much. One final thanks from my man, John Isaac, for all his audio and editing work behind the scenes. He is the reason that this show sounds as good as it does week in and week out. So thank you, John. All right, that's all I've got for now. Until next time, I'm Mario Fraley, and this has been another episode of the Morning Shakeout Podcast.